Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM. This is Paul Bass, your host, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Well, there's a scholar in the house. He's been doing some fact-checking on one of the founding fathers, and he's got quite a story to tell. His name is Robert Pierce Forbes. He's from New Haven. He's a scholar on slavery and American history, taught at UConn, founding associate director of Yale's Gilder Lerman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. And Rob has a new book out. Has a lot of interest. He's technically the editor and the annotator, though he kind of wrote parts that you're really going to end up reading. It's called Notes on the State of Virginia, an annotated edition. Thomas Jefferson originally wrote the book 1785, or that's actually one of the questions. When did he actually write the book? Mm-hmm. And Rob has a new version of it out where he goes over every line of the book to see what Jefferson was really writing. Was it accurate? And what does it mean about the stories we tell ourselves about American history? And today, Rob, welcome to Dateline New Haven, and thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. And as promised, I was going to tell you, get so close to that mic, you're almost touching it, but yeah. not, but not quite. All right. So, Mike, I mean, excuse me, Rob, you you did this book where you took this um, this manuscript that Jefferson published in 1785. It was, te- as I understand it, and you got to correct me here. Yeah. It was masquerading at first as just sort of a factual list of stuff, right? That Jefferson had was writing for some people in Europe to say, here's what America's all about. Here are he, all the facts, right? He totally downplayed it, its value, uh, and particularly its value to him. So that's exactly right. So it was saying this is just notes on what Virginia is. Everything from what animals are there, what the people are like, what the laws are like, what people do for a living, correct? What that's, the terrain is that's like. That's right, yeah. But it became something <clears throat> else, and you make clear that Jefferson, in, in doing all these quote-unquote facts, which some which didn't turn out to be facts, about everything you'd want to know about Virginia in 1785, he was really up to something else, correct? That's that's correct. Uh, you know, he worked on this book for uh, six years. Wow. And so he put more effort into it than any other project of his life except for Monticello. Mm. Um, and so it's an interesting question why he so profoundly downplayed its importance. He talks about it as notes, uh, plural, uh, I always describe it as notes on the state of Virginia, sin- singular. It's, it, that's the title. It's not a series of notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had a, I mean, what you find is nobody writes a book, uh, or rarely do people write a book and publish a book, go through all of that process, unless they have something really important they want to say. Uh, and, that was his goal, um, and the book established him as a, a major figure uh, in the in the Enlightenment, uh, in the the uh, Republic of Letters, so to speak. And it was this sort of his attempt to have a, an authoritative text of what America is. Uh, yes and no. That was how he wanted to present it, and. Uh, the blurring of the lines between uh, the state of Virginia and the United States uh, is... Well, that's one of the themes. It's he made it sound like all of America, pretty much, except for like three neighborhoods, was supposed to be Virginia, right, as you go out west. <laughs> right. But uh, that's what was so interesting about it. Here you had this text that seemed like a straightforward text from 1785 that had an impact. And you're going back and looking at it after scholars have looked at it for centuries. Right. 
And you look so closely at it, Rob. It was so fun to see how you did it. Mm. You looked at what was crossed out. You looked at other versions of the manuscript. You looked at where he lied. Yep. He like he took out a Roman numeral to say what year something was published, exactly. right? Exactly. And the agendas you come up with, you're making some pretty big claims, in my opinion, Rob. You're claiming that he's trying to justify, and we'll get to this later, yep. his position on slavery when it was completely unjustifiable and he clearly knew it. He tried to make claims about American people and animals to the Europe to try to claim we were bigger than they thought we were, and he lied about that. He tried to make territorial claims for Virginia, as you said. And overall, do you think he was thinking about his place in history? Because one thing I didn't know until I read your book, I'm not a scholar of American history, was that he was a pretty failed governor of Virginia. That's right. And that he kind of wanted to have his role. He, he wasn't some big fighter in the revolution like Washington. You know, it was important because the Declaration of Independence, right? And he was a, a big thinker about freedom, and there were a lot of contradictions in that he had to mm. come to grips with. So in this seemingly straightforward assignment for someone in Europe that he has to spend six years on, he's, he's trying to write, set the record that might look best for him about what his state is going to be, what his views were on slavery and Native Americans and what America is and what we are now. Is that a fair way to put it, Rob? Yes, I think you can put it even more strongly than that. Uh, Jefferson, as you say, his his governorship was was a was a disaster. Um, See, I didn't know they were ready to run about everything, right? Yeah, right. And he like retired to Monticello, like get away from it all. He right? escaped, yeah, yeah. essentially, um, and escaped from Monticello to his uh, to his um, his uh, plantation, smaller plantation, Poplar Forest near Lynchburg. Um, he, you know, there were there were two invasions by the British of Virginia while he was governor. Um, so that was, you know, while everybody else, all the, all the other founding fathers were, you know, making their uh, their place in history through the revolution, uh, that was not happening for him. And then the other personal catastrophe was that uh, his wife died uh, without leaving him a male heir. So he has no, no one to carry forward uh, his, his family name. Uh, and at that point, no, no accomplishments in the revolution that would uh, make his name last forever. And that's what, you know, the, the, the founding fathers talk about this all the time, um, that they are, they are, um, desirous of of fame and a permanent uh, place in history and part of jefferson's history if, if, correct me if i'm wrong is that he was supposed to be our inspiring theorist right he's the one who really talked about <coughs> people rising up and having revolutions every generation mm -hmm. the democratic position he was the person who argued for the rights of the small person the rural person although as he has to grapple with here and then you really put him to the test on and is how does that square with slavery, which he knew he acknowledges he knows is wrong, then comes oh, up yeah. with all these excuses for it, right? Yes, yes. Well, not exactly excuses for it. Uh, he he never defends slavery. I don't think in, in, in all of his writing, uh, in, in all of his thousands of letters, I don't think he ever actually defends slavery. Um, and the thing that, that the book is most famous for is, uh, the two things that it's most famous for is his, uh, extremely insightful and passionate uh, denunciation of slavery uh, as a in, concept in in chapter eight and, and 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 its influence on particularly the white people of Virginia. 
Um, and then four chapters before that, in, in, in chapter 14, uh, his unbridled attack uh, on the uh, intellect and, 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 and uh, caliber of, of uh, Africans, uh, or of blacks, as he puts it. He doesn't want to take them back to Africa and discuss them there, which is very interesting. Um, he has the most uh, extreme, uh, makes the most extreme case for black inferiority of, that any American makes in print for really another 30 or 40 years. And you also mentioned, you said it was a three-pronged argument. He admits more than some people did that slavery was wrong, although a lot of people were admitting it. Oh, yes. We're quoting like the ministers and stuff. Yep. But then at the same time, normalizing it by showing how it was in the law and then he acknowledges the injustice and supports emancipation in concept, but then has a wildly impractical plan for how to bring it about. And then he has that deep argument about the races being inherently different with blacks being inferior. Right. Which is not the way we think of Jefferson, right? Even though we do think about the complications of Sally Hemings and slavery. Yeah, and, and, and you know, why, why, do, why does he make this case? Why does he, ah, thank you. Yeah, we're getting you closer because okay. you're coming off a little low. Great, thank you. Oh, that's better. You don't have to yell, but we want to get you close. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that has, has uh, you know, really uh, embarrassed Jefferson supporters all along, including at the time. Um, why does he come across so brutally uh, against, against blacks? And what do you think? Do you think it's because he was straining <clears throat> so hard to square a circle and defend the indefensible that deep down he knew was wrong, or is that being too sympathetic to him? Well, charitable. What he realizes uh, after Martha, his wife, dies, is that if he's going to be famous for anything, it's going to be for being the author of the Declaration of Independence. And in a sense, that's strange. Independence, right? <laughs> um, that's that's a little bit strange because it's you know. He wrote it, but very few people are aware that he wrote it at the time, and and you know even fewer would have particularly cared because it was an, it was a state paper uh, issued by the Continental Congress. So, uh, you know, if you were to ask uh, who wrote the U.S. Constitution, um, and a lot of people would say Madison, but he didn't write it. He had great ideas for it, but. But uh, the person who actually drafted the, the document was, was a uh, representative, a delegate from uh, New York named Governor Morris. Oh. And uh, there are no, his house is not a national monument. So Jefferson thought that would be, he'd be like Governor Morris. Well, yeah, it, it, that, that would be the normal thing. So his, uh, an important strategy really of his entire career uh, was subtly, so we didn't draw attention to it. Um, emphasizing his role as the author of the Declaration of Independence, and that he realizes pretty early on is uh, is is you know, provides a uh, a conundrum because particularly when he gets to uh, to Europe when he gets to France as our uh, Minister Plenipotentiary um, in Paris, he re- he discovers that there's a lot of uh, confusion and confoundment about 
why hasn't the United States done anything about slavery yet? Right, England was far ahead of us, yeah. Yeah, uh, and he he basically has to square the circle of being the author of the Declaration of Independence and being someone who uh, economically and socially and culturally is entirely dependent on the labor. So this book in part was his effort to square that circle. That's right. But uh, it's also much more. It is. And that's what we're talking about with Rob Forbes, who has really done one of his works of a lifetime, I would bet, you know, the new new version, an annotated and edited version of Thomas Jefferson's 1785 Notes on the State of Virginia, which brings a new lens after fact-checking, dissecting, and trying to explain a work of American historical scholarship. It's a work of scholarship on its own here on WNHH's Dateline New Haven, 13.5 FM, live streamed at newhavenandbin.org. So, Rob... Jefferson spent six years on this. Yeah. How many years did you spend working on this? <laughs> That's a cruel question, Paul. Um, it's actually an admiring question, but you'll see where I'm going. Over 10. So you spent over 10 years studying this. Yeah. And you did something pretty incredible. You went over every line of this and looked through all these historical documents to see where it was accurate. And you even looked at like maps and top, topological, like geographical documents to see how big things really were and, and what other people wrote about. It was a work of scholarship. After a long history as a scholar and an academic and slavery being, why did you spend 10 years on this? Why was this your passion project? That's My, my wife asks me that question all the time. Um, essentially, I didn't start out as a, as a, a Jefferson scholar or particularly a Jefferson admirer. Um, I was working on when I started in academia, I was working on the the, uh, the British abolitionists. I did a a paper in my junior year, uh, a junior seminar at George Washington. I just, for no reason that I could think of, woke up one morning and said, I'm going to write a junior seminar on the racial attitudes of the British abolitionists. I knew nothing about the subject. I barely knew that there was such a thing as British abolitionism. But I decided to do that. Uh, and that semester paper took me a year and a half to write. And the reason that it took so long is that a whole year of it was trying to come to terms with the evidence that I was seeing uh, and accept it that the British abolitionists and largely uh, the British public as a whole didn't have racial attitudes. They were not operating within a paradigm of race. They were operating within a worldview in which if, if, if you were religious or even if you weren't, uh, the, the definitive uh, work of history and explanation of the world was the Bible. And the Bible begins with the fact that uh, everybody in the world is descended from a single set of parents, from Adam and Eve. And so it was absolute orthodoxy and scientific fact as far as people were concerned that there was one race of people uh, in the way we in the way that we and that Jefferson uses the word race uh, everybody was was you know descended from the same uh, parents and 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 were cousins in a sense um, he Jefferson sort of tries to undermine this principle. You know, when I talk to my students uh, and, and we talk about 
Declaration of Independence and the line, all men are created equal. I would say 90%, 99% understand that as his being honest about his belief, but also believing that, that Africans are not men, which makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense in a sense. Um, but he did indeed, at that time, in fact, I think all the way through, acknowledge or recognize to himself, of course, blacks are men um, and women. And it's, it's clear in the early draft of the, the declaration where he has a, a passage which is, is struck out by Congress denouncing the slave trade, denouncing uh, George III for maintaining a market where, where uh, men, and it's in block capitals, twice the size of the other letters, are, are traded like, like cattle. Um, he, in 1776, he drafts a constitution for Virginia that doesn't get adopted, um, that, that bars slavery from Virginia. No more slaves will come into it. Um, and, and slavery will eventually end. This is, this is where he's coming from uh, in the 1770s and, and, be, and before. He's, he's, a, he's a man of his time in that way. So that was, that was not extraordinary. That was the norm. You know, what I found about these British abolitionists was, was, was the norm, and it was the case in America as well as, as in England, um, in Britain. So I would try to tell this story uh, and you know, to audiences. And always someone would raise their hand and say, what about Thomas Jefferson? And what about that, that racism of Jefferson, which uh, everybody assumes was, was, was the view that was held by everyone at the time? Um, so I you know, tried to go around Jefferson for years and finally realized the only way that you can undo that belief is by tackling it head on. Uh, so I knew undo, uh, tackling what belief? Undoing what belief? That the that the of the the pervasive racism um, in you know the formal racism, the belief that blacks were not human uh, in the in the 18th century. Um, I had to demonstrate that this was actually something more or less new. There were ideas swirling around. Sui generis to America. Uh, not really, because there, there are ideas that are swirling around uh, from the, you know, in, in France, in Germany, but very marginalized ideas. Um, and the people who are studying uh, races in those days, you know, they're getting their information from cadavers. Mm. Uh, they're trying to figure out where is the black coming from in the skin of, of black people. Um, by, the, by the 1770s, there are lots of, an increasing number of, um, of very well-known uh, black people who are writing their own books, speaking in public. They have, they have uh, Phyllis Wheatley writing in 1773 this extraordinary work of poetry which makes her 
the most famous poet in America, not the most famous black poet, not the most famous black female poet, the most famous poet in America uh, in around the world. So that idea, that sort of uh, outdated idea that blacks are somehow fundamentally different, that's it's basically gone by mm. the, the... So then you're showing that, that Jefferson really tried to find ways to maintain it, even as he said it was wrong. So Jefferson, you try to avoid diving into Jefferson for mm. decades, it sounds like. Yeah. Now you've spent a decade of your life writing this definitive new work that kind of advances our understanding of Jefferson by looking at the seemingly uncontroversial factual compendium of notes. What? It's, there's a lot more to this book, though, than slavery. Why is it important for us to know what was the truth about what Jefferson was writing about the state of Jefferson, of Virginia in 1785? Why was it worth 10 years of your time, and why is it important for us to wrestle with these issues today? Well, on, on a purely um, academic level, uh, this is one of the most important, this is universally regarded as one of the most important uh, early American works. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's in the top three hundred uh, uh, texts, college assigned texts. Mm. It's it's uh, it's cited all over the place, but nobody has actually studied it in any kind of detail. Nobody has studied the manuscript. This is one of the few books from the eighteenth century where we actually have the printer's copy where is of the it? manuscript. Where did you get it? That's one of the reasons why it hasn't been studied. I think. It's in the possession of the Massachusetts Historical Society. So you've been spending a lot of time in Massachusetts for the last 10 years? Not actually. I've been there a few times. But <laughs> not only do they own it, but they, a few years ago, put up a high-resolution scan oh. online. So, so now it became possible for someone like you who has a, a lifetime of scholarship to apply it there. Exactly. What I love that it, what you're doing is like the, the outdated art of fact-checking. I think you mm. basically fact-checked Jefferson. Yeah, you looked at what kind of you know some of my favorite parts was when he left out the room numeral I to mm. show when he published the public manuscript to kind of try to make it fit. But you also looked at how um, there was sort of intentional dis the discrepancies you found. What um, why? I guess I, I'm trying to understand what it was like to do that for ten years. Like, were you in a room in your house because it was scanned, or how did you do that? Yeah, I'm 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 sitting in my office with. Uh, a, a very large monitor next to me, uh, pulling this up so that sometimes an, a, a single word is filling the screen. Um, he 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 crosses out a huge amount of 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 uh, of material. And you were looking at this crossed outs. Give me an example. Something crossed out that wasn't about slavery. That was a good example of why it matters. Okay, um, there's one in in the. Uh, chapter on rivers your rivers was interesting to me yeah how, how big the rivers were yeah yeah so he writes um about the mississippi uh, during its floods which are periodical as those of the nile the largest vessels may pass down it. um in the manuscript he writes uh during its floods noah's ark could pass down it <laughs> um and it's one of the most whimsical uh, passages in the book, which 
had to go, I guess. But it also... Um, <laughs> it's kind of hard to factually prove. Yeah. <laughs> right. It, it, it's, it's also interesting because, you know, Jefferson wrote, uh, Jefferson did a, uh, a cut-and-paste version of the Bible uh, in which he took out, of the New Testament, in which he took out anything he felt was, was, was uh, supernatural, miraculous. He pulls out, you know, he, he shreds the thing. There's not a lot of Because he's against the supernatural that. verse you said about what, so he's making a fight about religion too. Exactly, and he exactly. Like, he also like, I, I thought there were examples I saw in the book where he said an animal was actually bigger than it was. Right. That's, so that make it look like we have as healthy a uh, environment for, for uh, but also like where land lines were. Wasn't he saying that Virginia kind of had claim to all what were going to become Western states and all that? Well, he, he's getting that from, from uh, one of the earliest uh, royal uh, charters of uh, James the first, which essentially uh, implicitly makes Virginia gives the boundaries boundaries of Virginia is the is the uh, um, the Western Ocean. So uh, <laughs> it goes all the way. And then also Pacific. he he downsized how big Niagara Falls was, <laughs> and then he had some falls I never heard of in Virginia that he said were bigger, right? And why did he do that? And how did you find out that that was wrong? Well. I thought that was a little bit un- unlikely, uh, and so I, I... How did you prove it? Uh, I... One of the, one of the texts, one of the, uh, the sources that I used was a, um, a guide to, uh, new, to Virginia's uh, waterfalls, mm-hmm. um, sort of put out by the, by the uh, Department of... of uh, what was the name of the falls again that he was talking about? I don't remember off. But why why was he lying about that? I don't think it was so much that he was lying as you know, he had uh information from probably one of his correspondents that he didn't feel it was it was necessary at all to fact check. And people were not were not taking uh honeymoons at Niagara Falls at that point. Right. So So you think this wasn't the information? Yeah, I think everyone it's probably, sees their own land is bigger. But but, uh, but why did he cross out the Roman numeral I to say what year he published? Well, that it? was one of the things that 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 was one of the great um, uh, puzzles that I had to address. Hmm. Um, so he publishes the book in 1785. He, he, he takes it to uh, a Paris printer uh, in March of that year, and. In in uh, on the, the the title page, he uh, he originally writes that it's uh, it's revi- it's uh, uh, correct somewhat corrected and enlarged uh, in the he's a, written in the year 1781 somewhat corrected and enlarged in the winter of 1782-1783. Uh, for the use of a foreigner of distinction. Um, so then he crosses out the 1783, turns it into 1782, and he has the title page, uh, on the title page, the date of publication is 1783 in Roman numerals. And as you say, he scratches out the last Roman numeral. And why did he do that? Well, so the first question is, why is he saying he's published it in the 1783? Uh, you know, I didn't say that I, I finished my book in, in 2020. Right. Um, 
And what I concluded after a lot of study, there are a number of points where he's referring to things. Uh, he's implicitly referring to publications that came out after that. And he wants to make sure, he wants to, 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 to make it, you know, talk about fact-checking, he wants to make it impossible to argue that he was writing something with these things in so mind. So he wanted the claim, he wanted to get the credit. It's not that. He, he really wanted to, to, I think there's a specific audience that he has, a specific individual in particular, that he has in mind, uh, who he's aiming this towards. There are a lot of passages in the book uh, that uh, borrow from or reflect on um, or ad advance the case of uh, a, a, a an English uh, Unitarian minister named Richard Price, uh, who was the United States' greatest defender, the America's greatest defender uh, in, during the Revolution. And um, in 1784, he was one of the, the most significant people who looked, you know, Europeans who looked at, at the United States and, and was disappointed in what was going on there. Uh, one of the things that disappointed him was the passion, the, 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 the appetite for riches from, from, from Europe. This was, this was a terrible uh, sign of degeneracy. And the other was that they'd done nothing about slavery. Um, and so Jefferson needed to incorporate into this work passages that showed that he was absolutely on top of both of these issues. Without having to be alerted by Richard Price. Exactly. You think that's why he deliberately scratched out the eye? I think that's... that's How did you find reason. out that he scratched out the eye? Um, you look at the... You, you, you pull up the, 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 uh, the page uh, on, the, on the, um, the scanned page. Uh, you pull it up high enough on the, on the monitor and you can see that... Were you looking for that? Or did you just notice it and say, hmm, I wonder why that is? I wasn't looking for that. So where were you? Is, you, is your office at home? Yeah. So in your home office, you have a screen. Yeah. You're just looking at the page. And you say, oh, that looks funny. He scratched out an eye. Well, it's like the publication date is supposed to be eight, 1783. Mm -hmm. Why does it say 1782? Um, and so the first thing I saw was where he had scratched out the 1783 That's above. That's what I'm saying. Did yeah. you say, did you just notice that without looking for it? Yeah, I think so. And what did you so. think? This is a this is a, a a problem to be solved, and then you solved it, and I solved it. And you solved it in this book that anyone can now read. It's a, a piece of scholarship that's the new version, new annotated, edited version of Thomas Jefferson's Notes on the State of Virginia, published by Yale Press and prepared by Robert Forbes, who was guest today on Dateline New Haven. So I thought of the Talmud obviously when I read this. Anyone <laughs> Jewish is gonna because what you have is on the page, and it's sort of like the internet. Remember Talmud on the internet with Jonathan Mahler and right. that book. Yeah, right. so that's what I thought yeah. about. So you have the page, every page, except for an intro to each section, which is really non-scholars like me need that intro. Yep. Um, then you see the page of text. And there'll be a section on what size rivers are. And you gave us a hint, which we needed, of what to look for in each part, at what people look like. And then you have, you have footnotes. You annotate it. 
but you're also giving your own commentary. And in those footnotes, you're referring to the scholars who came before you. Mm. So you're talking about people who wrote in the 1700s, 1800s, and 1900s, and, 20, and the 21st century, which is my, what I love about scholarship because it's a conversation like this. So the Talmud is like that. It's a piece of text, yeah. the original Jewish text, and then there's another layer around it, Rashi, you know, hundreds of years ago, someone wrote, and then what people have said since, and now we look at it today. Were you thinking of the Talmud, like when you decide how to lay this out? Not specifically, but it, it took a long time to figure out what the format was going to be. But, to but I was, I was uh, so uh, delighted uh, when you made that analogy because it, 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 it does really fit. And, and we don't read this like a book, although I did, sitting from beginning to end. You don't really do this in order, right. I'm guessing. I did, because we had the radio show on, which you hit it all. But in general, you'd kind of look at what you're interested in and then look at this in exactly. three dimensions. Exactly, exactly. And, and it, isn't that what's beautiful about true scholarship, respectful scholarship, when you're looking at what people wrote before and you're showing it in its own form so people can judge for themselves? And you're advancing knowledge, not with hubris, saying I would have been smarter than Thomas Jefferson if I were there then, <laughs> but you have the benefit of history. Right. And you can see how things worked out and what other evidence has come to light. And you're advancing knowledge by moving forward. Is that something you've heard from the community of Thomas Jefferson scholars? Yes, indeed, it is. It is. The, 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 you know, there, there are a lot of people who are finding this uh, interpretation of, of, of Jefferson very painful. Right? Uh, Jefferson is, is without doubt our most beloved Founder, although he's also probably our most reviled founder. Um, but the people who live with Jefferson every day, the scholars, uh, the, um, the, the people who, uh, like Clay Jenkinson, who is a, a, a humanities scholar who is an interpreter of Jefferson, he does Jefferson uh, all around the country and the world. Uh, he knows Jefferson backwards and forwards. And he called me up uh, and wanted me to come on his his uh, podcast um, because he found this important because it answered this this gnawing and painful question for him: Wh Why is Jefferson taking this shocking view of of black people? And also Native Americans. One of my f most interesting crossouts where mm. he crossed out an acknowledgement that when they bought the land purchased. <laughs> um, from the Native Americans, they made it with sword in one hand. He crosses out sword in one hand. And then you argue he dis deliberately misidentifies a tribe, the Massawomics, who I never heard of, with the Iroquois, mm. to justify the land grab. Yeah, yeah. So he kind of got his number. Yeah, and this I, this, uh, I discovered from, uh, uh, in, a, in a book on Jefferson and the Indians by Anthony F.C. Wallace, uh, who pointed that out. So that gave me a good lead into... So into it's painful that. to reckon with our founding fathers... There's been an incredible debate going on in this country since Black Lives Matter about how we view people in their context. One side says, you know, they have great contributions. Right. You know, Jefferson has really interesting comments in here that I, I find complicated and, and valuable about his his um, opposition to commerce and global trade, right? Yep. In some ways, he's a Bernie Sanders or is he a Absolutely. Donald Trump when it comes to, like, global trade and not relying abroad? And even tobacco farming, he's against all he's for wheat farming. So somehow that's that's purer, but he's also worried about war growing out of the, the ties from global commerce, which we kind of resonates today in this American first debate that's more complicated than people presented and it right. crosses left and right. Yeah. So I guess that leads me to the question is why should we go through the painful reckoning 
of who Thomas Jefferson was and what he thought and what he was really up to when he wrote this book? And how should we view him in the context of our time and the other time? Where do you land in that debate? Well, look, uh, Jefferson did write those words, all men are created equal. And that is a, that is a sentiment that has, that has resonated through the centuries. Uh, it's, it's, it was the inspiration of the Seneca Falls de- Declaration in, in 1848. It was, the ins- it was the inspiration for the uh, Declaration of Independence from France by Vietnam. Uh, Ho Chi Minh quoted, quoted uh, the, the Declaration. Um, I think it's been demonstrated that over a hundred uh, nations and organizations uh, used, re- re- referred to the Declaration, based their, their statements of, of independence uh, on that document, so he's not going anywhere. Uh, his 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 reputation uh, is is safe uh, as far as being a uh, a force for uh, for freedom. Um, but that's not the whole story, clearly, and I think. Many people have looked at Jefferson's faults uh, and read and interpret that as the whole the whole uh, package needs to be discarded. We can't we, if we can't trust Jefferson here, we can't trust him. Or the real way to look at history is to not discard a whole package, but see the whole package exactly and understand the whole package as a as a as a complex and then it becomes a hard question with statues and um naming of schools do you take down the statues of Mm. jefferson do you put them somewhere as a historic exhibit versus uh and i I was interested in how yale wrestled with that question with john calhoun you know the prominent slavery advocate and they came up with the that's tough question right yes it is. and they came up with the argument that context matters the reason someone is being honored Right. So Calhoun was being honored by Yale, not because he was important to Yale, but because they wanted to convince white Southerners exactly. to feel comfortable here. So that would be a reason not to name him. Yeah. Or I think it was in Texas they named after uh, one of the university buildings after a Southern general because they were fighting back versus Brown versus Board. Right. Right. But in other cases, they argue if people are complicated and you're not honoring for that reason, you, ne- you don't necessarily take it down. I don't know where you stand on that. Well, there are some really problematic examples. Uh, I, I mean, the, I, the, 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 the core idea is right, that you don't want to have, you don't want to celebrate people who sought the overthrow of the government and... Uh, and Confederates, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and in the name of, of slavery and white supremacy. But once you start a process like that, it's very hard to uh, stop it, to stop it, or to, or to, or even to artists mod- like all men create. So if, if Jefferson wrote inspiring words that had a great impact on history, but he's a flawed human being as all are, yeah, that leads into like T. S. Eliot, because his nasty sympathizers are found, or like uh, Bob Dylan, what kind of person he is versus the songs he writes, you know, and it, it, it becomes a slippery slope, it but an important one to navigate. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that really kind of seems to me to be crossing a line is. Uh, tearing down the statue of A.P. Hill, uh, the Confederate general that's over his, his monument in the cemetery. Hmm. All right.
But he gave us a lot to think about, Rob Forbes. That was 10 years spent well <laughs> advancing you. our knowledge of one of those important figures in our history and issues that resonate today. So the, the book is, uh, let me just say it right, uh, Notes on the States of Virginia, State of Virginia, an annotated edition written by Thomas Jefferson and edited and annotated and brought back to life by Rob Forbes. You can get it. Yale University Press publishes it. You can get it. I read it. And we're going to be hearing a lot more about it. Thank Job you so well much. done, Rob Forbes. Appreciate it. And thanks for joining us on Dateline New Haven. My pleasure. And uh, thanks to Harry Droz working the controls and getting us all through the multiverse on infinite platforms and infinite versions. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. Mm-hmm.